You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Today we have a special interview from the Swedish Human Rights Forum that was held in Malmo in November. This is with Alice Wadstrom from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute, who is interviewing Cynthia N. Loe a professor known for her work on gender and militarism. Enjoy. I am here with uh, Professor Cynthia Enloe, who uh, focuses on militarism from a feminist perspective. Hello, Cynthia. How are you? Hi. Hi, Alice. How are you? Very good. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you will be speaking about at the seminar here at the Swedish Forum for Human Rights? I think I was invited because the organizers are really eager to have a more, I mean, there are a lot of feminists that are involved in human rights in Sweden, but I think they wanted to have a very specific conversation about what feminist questioning can bring to all of our work on militarism in a way that sharpens our understanding of the challenges to human rights. So I think that's kind of my mandate. Right. And I will do my best. <laughs> right. And um, why is it important to speak about the role of women in military culture? Well, what feminists have been doing in a lot of countries now um, is trying to understand two things at the same time. And they're connected. The first is, where are women in the processes of preventing war, of not preventing war, of fostering militarization. Where are women? And so, for instance, in my work, I am very interested in women who become the mothers of soldiers, usually sons, but sometimes daughters. What do they think they're doing? How do they get persuaded? A lot of women in a lot of countries are really opposed to their sons or their daughters joining the military or being drafted. But sometimes they get persuaded, and sometimes they're persuaded by their kids who say, I really need to do this, this is my way to contribute to society. Um, sometimes they never get persuaded, but they somehow feel once their son or daughter is in the country's military, they've got to support their son or daughter, even though they don't support the military. And then they're very torn. And I'm very interested in when people get torn. Yes. The other thing that... Can you explain in what way they get torn? They get torn because these... Now, I'm talking about very particular women who, on the one hand, are not supporters of their country's military. They don't believe in the militarization of foreign affairs or of local affairs. Um, but their son or daughter has joined the military, and they feel as though they have to be a loyal mother. Not loyal necessarily to the government's mandate, but loyal to their son or daughter. They want them to do well. They don't want them to be injured. They want them to feel some kind of satisfaction in their soldiering. And then that's torn, because those aren't the same objectives at all. So women as mothers of soldiers is not studied very much, um, except if women form together as anti-war groups. That's what's studied. But not women as or uh, mothers of ordinary soldiers. But it's that very confusion. And how do you work out that confusion if you're an individual mother? How do you work that out? What do you end up doing? Do you end up just staying silent about what the military is being used and just send your son or daughter food packages? 
or do you urge your son or daughter to get out of uniform? And besides uh, the fact that you can be opposed to, to, to warfare, um, what is it about the military culture in itself that might be problematic for, for women? Yes, well, this is the other part of the feminist questioning. So the first part is that feminists are actually interested in women's lives. They really take women seriously. Um, and that's why feminists are about the only ones who are interested in women as wives of soldiers, women as mothers of soldiers. To tell you the truth, they're amongst the only people truly interested in women as peace activists. But the other thing that feminists do is they ask about masculinity, plural, actually, masculinities. And they ask to what extent do people who present themselves as experts, always in quotes, um, experts in foreign affairs or in military policy, why are they so presumed to be men? And not only that, but they're presumed to be a certain kind of manly man. It's manly men who can talk as experts um, about foreign policy and military policy. Feminists think that's very questionable. Feminists always put question marks around experts, and they always ask to what extent does presenting yourself, sometimes at the dinner table, sometimes at the bar, uh, as an expert in military and foreign affairs, why is that considered so manly? And what does that do to silence women and make women's great knowledge about war and about foreign affairs? Why does that silence so many women? Why does it put them at, at the periphery of any national discussion, for instance, of NATO? And also, for example, within... Um UN peacekeeping operations. There's uh, there's a lack of women participating in as as blue helmets and perhaps also in the or, on the organizational uh, level. So I suppose that you also have some opinions about how women can contribute to to peace. Yes, I, one of the things that a lot of feminists and you are very familiar with 1325. One of the things that a lot of feminists around the world are very critical of. They're very critical of thinking that the implementation of 1325 is. So that's Security Council Resolution 1325. Yes, Security Council Resolution 1325, Women, Peace, and Security, passed in October 2000, 16 years ago. And a lot of governments who claim to be implementing 1325 for themselves reduce it down to, well, we'll just add more women to our UN blue helmets, to our UN uniformed, militarized peacekeeping forces, and then we will have fulfilled our pledge under 1325. And feminists, I have feminist friends in New Zealand, for instance, and the New Zealand feminists said, no, 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 no. If the New Zealand, now conservative government, thinks that that's implementing 1325, they are really wrong. So feminists say 1325 was about considering women's needs and women's ideas and women's genuine participation in peace negotiations and national reconstruction, not just adding more women to the militarized blue helmet units. That's not enough, ever. So we need more women experts? In the we, need more, we need more women who are taken seriously because of their knowledge. Can you elaborate a little bit on why, why women participate in in maintaining structures that limit their rights? I mean, besides being um, besides because of the role as mothers or, yeah. or wives, and, and even so, can you elaborate a little bit on on that? What kind of what kind of pressures or expectations do they do they feel? Well, 
a lot of us, and you too, know that feminists are not feminists simply because they're women, right? There's no biological um, impulse to be a feminist. And a lot of women in a lot of societies, including my own, I'm from the U.S., um, really are patriarchal. And by that I mean is that they take, they take great comfort in the systems of marriage. They take great comfort in the idea that men are protectors. They take even great comfort in that women, that men are the supposed experts, um, or at least should be the spokespeople on all kinds of difficult issues. And though that's what patriarchy looks like. And I've often thought, well, I haven't forever. I took a long time to become a feminist. But once I have become a feminist, once the thing I think about a lot is just what your question implied, and that is that. What, why is it so many women have a stake in perpetuating patriarchy? And I think it's a really good question to ask. It doesn't mean that women are fools. It doesn't mean that women are dupes or puppets. It means that patriarchy hands out just enough reward to women, supposedly saying that they are better at emotions than men are, as if that's a compliment, as and right, or that women are more moral than men, as if men shouldn't also be challenged to live by, you know, morality. Um, or they say that women are so beautiful, um, and a lot of women are very complimented by that, you know. Um, so there, are, patriarchy has rewards for women. They the reward is not liberation. The war reward usually is protection, and protection always means a pat on the head. All right, putting you know patriarchy puts its arm around one's shoulders, at the same time with the other arm put pats you on the head, and that is not liberation. That's not being a full citizen. That's not being a full human being. But it can feel pretty good at the time. I see, and I suppose just to uh, to go back to the um, the topic militarism, mm. I suppose that what you just described, I mean that the military culture is kind of patriarchy in its uh, in its essence. In this way, it's taking to the extreme. Yes, I mean I think a lot of modern militaries today, the Swedish military, the American military, the New Zealand military, they make a big effort at posing as a gender equality institution, but they are still male run. They still depend on women becoming more like men in order to be successful if they're making a military career. So the masculinization of the most of our government's militaries um, in Western Europe and in North America doesn't look as obvious as it did, say, 30 years ago. But putting more women as uniformed military personnel at a checkpoint in Afghanistan is not liberation. And it is not actually changing the militarized, masculinized culture of a military. It's just that military commanders, men for the most part, have found new ways to use women. At first they resisted them and said, I don't want any women in my unit. My unit depends on being manly men, right? And then they're forced to put in a few women, not too many, a few. And slowly they think, oh, we could use women at the check points. They can search the local women. Oh, we do have some uses for women. And it's not like they really have given up the masculinization of their own profession, 
but they think if there are not too many of them and they don't really disturb our institutional culture, we can find uses for them. Oh, that's a new idea. I see. So they become kind of alibis without changing the, the structure in it, any means, meaningful way. Right? I think they deepen the structure okay. I, and the culture yeah. because now you can absorb. You've probably been in organizations. I bet a lot of your listeners have been in organizations where it looked as though having a few, not too many, a few women come into a mainly men's organization looked as though it was going to really change things at the newspaper, at the sports organization. And then, 10 years later, you look and you think, well, first of all, the women are still few, and they're all slotted into positions that the men have grown comfortable with. And actually, it's still a really patriarchal institution, but now it looks modern. Now it looks kind of updated because at least we have a few women around. So in sum, what, what is needed to, to change the structure in a meaningful way? Well, first of all, military shouldn't be the, in the forefront of, a, of any country's foreign policy. Civilian diplomats with all the kinds of skills, including a lot of skills that women, because of their training, not because of their biology, bring to diplomacy. That's what should be in the forefront aid organizations, human rights organizations, diplomatic organizations, welfare organizations, refugee organizations, those should be the organizations really in the forefront of any country's foreign policy. A military should be way back in the line. Thank you very much, Cynthia and Lil. Thank you. That was Alice Wadstrom from the Rao Wallenberg Institute interviewing Cynthia Enloe, a professor known for her work on gender and militarism. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Loon, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law.